Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Off the top of your head, don't try to meditate on too long. What would your response be if Jesus asked you this question? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Give me an answer, anybody. Yes. Say that right? Make everything in your life free? Okay. I can see how that might work. Yes. To reach our children. To reach our children. I take it me to the gospel, right? Okay. Bob? Save family members. Did I get that right? Yeah. What would you do if Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? What else would you say? Yes, it's Jackie. I can't hear. I'm sorry. You've already done it. You've already done everything. Oh, you already did it. Salvation, right? What else would you say? What do you want me to do for you? Help me to follow you wholeheartedly. Follow the Lord wholeheartedly. It is in our text. Um, there are back-to-back stories. Mark has a number of them. Mark 4 and 5, the back-to-back stories of miracles Jesus does and the response to them are being afraid. He has a side-by-side story in chapter 5 where there's a girl who's 12 years old and a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. They're very similar and connected, very different as well. Um, in our text, there are two passages here in Mark chapter 10, two stories, and they're side by side, and they are connected by the same question I just asked you that Jesus asks people in these texts. You can see them, Mark chapter 10 and verse 36, he said to them, meaning James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Draw a line from there, cross the page, for me anyways, and in verse 51, He's talking to blind Bartimaeus, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? No accident that Mark chooses of all the things Jesus did and talked to people in conversations. He chooses these two, and I don't think it's an accident that they are side by side in the scripture, because I think they are for us to learn the contrast. What are they all about? Um, They are brackets that put these two stories together. They begin and end them. The first one is Jesus asking his disciples, more particularly James and John. The second one, as I said before, is a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. And he asked that, was asked that question by Jesus. Now, what's unusual is same question, completely different answers. Completely different. Um, and I would tell you tonight... The answer is why, I mean, the question is why are they different? And the answer is because of their view of Jesus, who he was, and what that meant. All right? Keep that in your mind. All right? So you're going to have Messiah with or without a cross. All right? We're going to be shown that tonight a little bit. The difference in what kind of kingdom did Jesus have And what kind of king was he going to be? Um, Both stories, ready? 
both stories are preceded by what I think Mark wants us to use as the framework of properly understanding these two stories with the same question. They are introduced with this little vignette in 1032. Um, Let me read here. Uh, 1032 reads, And they were on the road, circle that, that little phrase, on the road, and then also, if you'll look at the end of our passage, in 1052, it's translated slightly different, but it's exactly the same words in the original. It says, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It would actually be on the road. Um, that brackets these two stories, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, but this story is pre- preceded by these two stories by this truth. Ready? Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, which is also repeated um, in verse 33. So he says, going up to Jerusalem twice, because he wants you to know why, what road they're on. This is the road that Jesus is traveling with the disciples the very last time in his life that he'll ever go to Jerusalem. Commentators call this, and it's in each one of the Gospels, some more than others, Luke the most, called the travel narrative. Everything everything that happens on the road between when he leaves the Galilee area to go all the way down to Jerusalem, you're supposed to understand it, and I'll show you, in the shadow of the cross. Everything is impacted and influenced by the fact that it takes place on the way to when Jesus is going to die on the cross. He tells us directly. Ready? Verse 32 again. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, now before I go any further, this is the third time in Mark's gospel that he has told them that when he gets to Jerusalem the last time, this is what they're going to do to me. He says that the first prediction, the Passion prediction, is in 831. The second one is in 931. And this is the third one. This one starts with the word behold, which the other two do not. And the reason is, as this is going to have more detail, he's going to say it more clearly than he's ever had before. Why? Because they're on the road to having it accomplished. So it says, see or behold. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, crucify him. And after three days, he will rise again. So here's what Jesus says. This is what my, I'm about. This is why I came this is what kind of king I am. This is what kind of kingdom I'm going to have. Now, that little phrase, on the road, is used in verse, our verse here. It's used three other places all the way through chapter 11 and verse 8 when the road finally ends in the triumphal entry that leads right into Jerusalem. So this road is taking us from where Jesus is. A lot of things happen. They stop in Jericho. We'll see in a little bit where they find blind Bartimaeus. But everything on this road 
is supposed to be viewed in the shadow of the cross. And I want to stop there for a minute. Can I tell you this? That's how you're supposed to live your life if you're a disciple of Jesus. Everything in your life, everything is to be done and lived out in the shadow of the cross. Um, That is what we do as we follow Jesus. That is what should contribute to and influence and impact every decision we make, small and great. We are not ever, ever to have a day where we don't crucify ourselves. I live by a motto I made up that it helps me to live out the scriptures in this light. And it says about that if I talk to God the Father, it says, I most most glorify God the Father when I most exemplify God the Son, and I most exemplify God the Son when by God the Spirit I most crucify self. And I wanted to put all the Trinity in there, and I I wanted to say every single day, here's what I want to do. I want to die to myself and live for Jesus. To me, it, it capsulizes what it means to be a disciple And here I think Jesus wants to let them know and you and I to know that that's how we live out being a follower of Jesus. That is not, it's way easier taught than caught because watch, 1035 says, see the word then? (laughs) 1035, see it? It says in James and John, it's translated and in the ESV, it's the very next thing. In other words, there weren't, there's no time between 34 and 35. He just told them, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross. They're going to do all these things to me. And then James and John have a request, and they're going to do completely the opposite of what he just said. Because no matter how many times, three times, he's told them, you want to follow me? You're going to have to take your own cross. I'm going to have mine. You're going to have yours. They've heard this more than three times in different ways, but three specific times. And now on the way to do that, they do not get it. And why? You say, how in the world can they be told so directly and they don't get it? Be careful. How can you be hearing this so many times and you don't get it and I don't get it, right? Why? Because they are blind to that reality. Why? Because they don't view Jesus that way. They view the kind of king that he would be and they're going to show you, is exaltation. That they, he would make them great. That he would give them honor. In an honor and shame culture, the most shameful thing that could ever happen to anybody, much less the promised Messiah and King. In their mind, never, never. It is the most shameful thing in a shame and honor culture. They can't even grasp that that could possibly be what God wanted to do. So when he talks about crucifixion, they must have thought he was talking metaphorically or some other thing because they can't put it in their mind. To them, that's shame, not honor. So they say in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now let me tell you, that whole mentality and spirit, there are numerous times in Mark's gospel, numerous times, James and John and Peter are mentioned together. In fact, almost every single time their names are used, all three of them together, except this one and in chapter 1, verse 16. I tell you that to say this. James and John and Peter were inseparable. Even Jesus chooses to put them together in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Transfiguration. In his mind, their own mind, they are all together. Their friendship is tight. 
except when you're looking for the highest honors for Jesus to give you. James and John and Peter know. James and John know Peter. He's not put in there. By the way, he's in the other 10. He is there that day because they all come in, the rest of 10. It makes 12. They're all there. James and John excluded him. Can I just tell you? Following Jesus without a cross, that's exactly what happens. It ruins friendships, relationships, selfish-centered things that take place. That's what happens in their life. So James and John, without Peter, come to ask a particular honor from Jesus. They say this, and he says the first time, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, give us that we may sit on your right hand and on the other on your left in your glory. Now they've already seen his glory at the transfiguration. They know what that means. That's pretty spectacular. He already told them in 838 of Mark that when the Son of Man comes with the angels and the glory of the, uh, of the angels. So they know what he's talking about. They're talking about supernatural, heavenly glory, Jesus shining like the sun. I mean, they, they know that they, <laughs> this is beyond their grasp. And so when it all gets set up, here's what James and, John, James and John say. Jesus, you'll be in the center. You are top. There's no doubt about it. But on your right and left, could that be us? Wow. Now, you t- remember, the other 10 are standing here. It like, took a lot of nerve, right? So interesting, isn't it? They want, here's what they think of Jesus. We're going to Jerusalem. Forget all the cross stuff. We want to talk thrones. You talk crosses, we talk crowns. <laughs> you talk grief, we talk glory, <laughs> Right? They don't get the idea of suffering first, glory second. They don't get crosses before crowns. All those little phrases that we come up with, they haven't bought into any of that. They don't see any of that. None of it. None at all. I find it to be ironic that the only two people that were ever t- said in Mark's gospel or any other gospel to ever be on Jesus' right hand and left were who? Who were the two people? They weren't James and John. Yes. You look at Mark 15, 27. Literally, the same phrase used by these guys to ask for that is the exact same one. It's the two revolutionary guys, and it says, and one on his left and one on his right. I mean, is that just a reversal? Is that just really what the kingdom is about? Jesus says, you want to sit on thrones, but the guys on my right and left, you know who they really be? They're the guys on the crosses. Why? Because that's really what my kingdom is about. It's not about thrones, not here and now. It's about crosses. It's about dying to yourself. They don't get it. And Jesus even tries to explain it. He says to Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism? And see, listen, they still don't get it. He's going to start drinking that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're sleeping. They think the cup and the baptism must be great things. They're going to drink a cup at the table in the, in the Messianic banquet in the future, and it must be something great. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Here's what I found out what happens to people who don't have a cross in their life and they try to follow Jesus. They often have the same vocabulary as Jesus, but with a different dictionary. Meaning, they say all the things, they say all the pious things, they have all the discipleship lingo down, but they don't mean anything that he means by it. To die to yourself, to lose your life, 
to take up your cross. They know all the words, but they don't have any of the same understanding of how you would actually do it. Jesus said, basically, you know, you had a chance. I gave you the chance. I haven't said this to anybody else. What do you want me to do for you? And you know what all you can think about is? You. You. Christ's kingdom is cross-centered, not throne-centered. And they didn't get that. Now the ten come up to him, as you can imagine, and they're angry. But watch. Let me prove it to you. They're not angry because James and John asked for those honored seats. You know why they're angry? Because they didn't think of it first. You know why I know that? Turn back one page to chapter 9. On the road... Chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you were disputed among yourselves on the road? Here's why. But they don't want to tell him. (laughs) They know what he would think of it. New King James says, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So he sits down and calls them to himself, and if anyone desires to be first, let him be last. And then he uses the little child illustration. But here they are on their road. This is one chapter. This is just a few days earlier. They're having a debate aside from Jesus. James, John, and Peter are included. You know what they're debating? Ah, you know, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to sit on his right. I'm going to sit. They're all planning on doing it. James and John just beat him to the punch. And they're mad about it. Why? Because none of them get it. None of them get it. Do you ever think that maybe we don't either? That we have so little cross thoughts in our minds, so many cross life in our lives. Do we really know? Do we really know what true greatness is? I think when you read 1042 through 45, and Jesus goes into this little discourse about what real greatness is, watch the text, because in the ESV, and it's rightly translated, He says in verse 42, Jesus called them and said, You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Watch. And they're great ones. Because in the world there is a kind of greatness and a kingdom view of greatness. And their rulers do this. Their kings act this way. And their kingdom functions this way. It's a power over kingdom. It's using your power, your position, authority, so that you can have people serve you and you can make them do what you want. He says, but it shall not be so among you. And in the Greek, it's it's emphatic on not. The whole first word of the sentence is not you um, shall it be among you. In other words, let me tell you, Jesus says, hey, we want to be like the the rulers of the world and have greatness and power on their level. Jesus says not, (laughs) literally. It's about as far from his kingdom as it could possibly be. But whoever should be great among you, there's the word again, again, you must be your slave, slave of all. In other words, if you want to truly be high in Jesus' kingdom, it'll be marked by how low you're willing to go if you're willing to be a servant. And then he says this, and then no one's excluded from this mentality in my kingdom, including myself. And he says, even the son of man, even the son of man. Now, if you don't know anything back theologically aside, real quick. 
Son of man is the term that is used in numerous places, Ezekiel, Daniel, but in particularly the classic passage is Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where it says, and the Son of Man was approaching the heavenly, the ancient of days. The Messiah was the one who would finish God's work and he would approach the throne of the ancient of days. In other words, that's the level he would be on. Now, who in their right mind would think that the guy who's going to fill God's purposes and kingdom and end up being right next to God would be the guy who would first suffer, be spit on, mocked, and crucified? It would make no sense to them that he could be that son of man. You know why? Because they didn't know really who he was, and they didn't understand why he was here, and therefore they didn't know what his kingdom was about. See, his kingdom was a power under kingdom, not a power over kingdom. The way up in his kingdom was down. It wasn't about being served. It was about serving. Can I tell you, that's what Faith Baptist Church is about. It's about people who are just as excited to be nursery workers as they are deacons. It's about pastors who realize that We're no better or different than anybody else. And so we come to work days and we do things. Why? Because it's not about being served. It's about serving other people. And Jesus says, you want to know, you can be countercultural because there are pastors today who are this, that, and the other. I had someone call me this week and told me that they appreciated, (laughs) I'll try to say this, they appreciated that I didn't wear really fancy clothes and had watches and gold on and all kinds of stuff. Now, this is not a conversation I normally have with people. And I joked, and they said, and I told them, well, I buy my stuff from Kohl's. And they go, that's what I like about you. My wife has and I have colitis, we say. Um, but you know what? She's, this person was telling me, I've been to other churches, and I've seen pastors, and this is what they do. I remember when I went the first, <laughs> the first time I ever took the shower trailer down to the uh, soup kitchen. And I introduced myself to a guy who was from a church locally downtown, and I said, hey, I'm Pastor Walker. He goes, no, you're not. I go, yeah, I am. I, wait, yeah, I am, yeah. And he goes, you know how I, you're not. How, I go, what do you mean? He goes, pastors in our churches down here, they don't come down here. They don't do this kind of stuff. I go, yeah, but this one does. And they said, you know what? We don't, because that's what we are, right? We're, we're servants. And, and Jesus says, that's the kind of kingdom I have. So I asked you tonight, as I asked myself this week, If Jesus looked at your life tonight, would he say this? Wow, she is really great. He is really great. While they have a great marriage, while they have a great family, what a great view of money they have. And by great, not meaning what everybody else would normally think, but this kind of great. Would he say, hey, that person, they are really great. I bet you're glad to have them as part of your church. So the first time Jesus asks it, what do you want me to do for you? The disciples, they blow it. But of all people, they should have got it right. They knew the cross story. They knew all that. But then the second time, verse 46, now they come to Jericho, which is elevated a little bit. And actually, before you go down, and he went out to Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat, there it is, by the road begging. Their own, the only guy in the whole Bible who was healed by Jesus who was also given his name. It's the only person ever healed that we know his name. Everybody else was anonymous. 
Bartimaeus is a Greek-Hebrew combination. Bar, always mean like bar mitzvah. Son of Timaeus is the Greek word tamao. It means son of honor. It makes you think that the guy was blind, not from birth, but something happened. Because no child would have been named son of honor when it was shameful to be blind. They thought it was a curse of God. If you're blind, you're begging. Why? Because nobody wants to take care of you. They think that you're cursed. You couldn't go into certain synagogues. You had problems. And according to Levitical code, you were probably outsider. So there's something wrong with him, but he's called the son of honor. Kind of crazy, isn't it? Jesus is the son of honor. Yeah, he has the worst humiliation that you could possibly have. He identifies with this guy. And here's the unusual thing. Remember how the disciples knew Jesus was Messiah, but they didn't know what it meant? The only time in all of Mark's gospel, Jesus's Davidic lineage is mentioned, is this guy, this blind guy, not a theologian, not a Pharisee, not a scribe, not a religious leader, a blind guy on the side of the road is crying out, son of David. He's the only one that mentions Jesus' connection to David because he sees him as the true king of Israel. The true king of Israel. But watch. The disciples think, you know what kind of king Jesus is? I think he's the kind of king that makes me great. He's the kind of king that uses his power to elevate me so I can sit on the throne. This guy is completely different. You know what he thinks? Jesus is the true son of David, the promised one. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And you know what kind of guy he is? He's the guy that hangs around with blind people that are ostracized. He's the kind of guy when everybody is saying, shut up, Bartimaeus. He's got way too much going. The crowd's saying, ah, be quiet. But the more they said be quiet to him, the louder he got. You know, why would he do that? Because he really knew who Jesus was. What kind of king he was. He's a guy that makes the crowd stop for an individual that nobody cares about. That's who he is. He has a conversation with a blind man. Now, anybody else would have said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? You know what Bartimaeus would have said? Give me money. (laughs) That's what he would have said. But he knows who he's talking to. The son of David. The real king of Israel. And what kind of king he is? Oh, he's got way more treasure and power in him than somebody just giving me. I don't want your money, Jesus. I want you. I want your power. You know what I want you to do with your power? Not make me great, but make me see so I can follow you. And that's exactly what he does. Isn't it crazy? The disciples can see, but they are blind. He is blind, but he can see. Crazy, isn't it? Isn't it us? We can see, but often we're blind. Blind to the cross, blind to what it means, blinded for all the implications of our life. He goes from sitting on the side of the road, notice, by the road, to walking on the road. And you know why he got up and followed Jesus? Because it wasn't what Jesus did for him that made him follow. It was what Jesus was doing in him. It changed him. Because he really knew who Jesus was and what kind of king he was. And he got up and followed. See, Jesus wants to know tonight, if you were asked that question by him, what do you want me to do for you? 
Would the question have been before tonight, would the answer have been for you, hey, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me? Or would it have been something completely different? Would the cross have impacted your answer? Would it have been a kingdom great answer? Would it have been one that Jesus would have said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about? The disciples blew it, but the blind guy got it right. (laughs) Right? It's not what you know, is it? It's who you know. Do you know him like that? Are you following him like that? Is he that kind of king to you? Do you understand the kingdom that we live in? If so, you'll know what his question and what your answer should be all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two stories and the revealing question of Jesus. For honest tonight, if we truly gave the answer that was in our heart to what our response would have been, we might be ashamed of it at this point. It might have been way off track. It wasn't because it was a bad thing. It just wasn't a kingdom thing. It wasn't a cross thing because it wasn't a Jesus thing. Help us, Lord. Help us to know who you are and what your kingdom is all about. Help us to live cruciform, cross-centered lives. To live in its shadow, or me, the song says. That it might impact all the decisions and all the ways that we live our lives, small and great, every single day. God, take away our blindness to that. And like you did for Bartimaeus, would you let us see that we might truly be sons of honor that bring glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.